Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. This week we're going to take more than usually full advantage of the time travel capabilities of the Fab Radio International TARDIS and travel back in time to look at some Tudor history courtesy of a trio of rather excellent historical dramas which were first broadcast in the early 1970s. These three dramas are The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which was unsurprisingly perhaps a six-part drama first broadcast in 1970 and starring Keith Michel as Henry VIII, Elizabeth R., a five-part drama first seen on the BBC in 1971 and recently re-shown on BBC4, starring Glenda Jackson in the title role. And finally, Shadow of the Tower, a 13-part series from 1972 featuring James Maxwell that takes a long, hard look at the lives of the early Tudors in the era of Henry VII. Our guide on this incredible journey is our returning guest this week, Lisa Parker, one half of the excellent Round the Archives podcast, who is my go-to expert when it comes to matters of English history, especially English history as portrayed in television drama. It is, after all, very much her bag. I often feel as if I'm auditioning for my own replacement whenever I interview one of my guests because it sometimes seems as if literally everybody else I talk to knows far more about their particular favourite corner of the universe of television than I do. But sometimes, as I hope you'll agree, it is very much the way to go rather than having me just sitting here and giving you a long list of recommendations to watch. So let's program our time engines and take a little trip back to the 1500s, although this time we will be travelling via the studios of the BBC in the late 1960s and early 1970s. What exactly is the historical drama series on television? For some, it might include as diverse a list of programmes as I, Claudius, the Forsyth Saga, Upstairs, Downstairs, House of Elliot, and The Duchess of Duke Street, weekly costume dramas set against the backdrop of a bygone era, often with lots of exciting horse and carriage action, or, in the 20th century, with streets adorned with beautifully preserved and highly polished vintage cars as we strut around the streets wearing the kind of elegant apparel that you just don't see people wearing anymore. Even The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes would qualify as a historical drama for some, and for others it might, quite rightly, even include a whole list of Shakespeare's plays, given that they, in their time, were very much the dramatisations of historical events that the theatre-going public sought out when they were looking for an evening's entertainment. But perhaps those stories that are based on reality and perhaps try their best to explain and portray actual historical events as far as we can ever understand them are perhaps what we really mean when we think of the historical drama series. Like many subjects, the big names of history remain ever fascinating, and television likes to return to them again and again, so that decade after decade can bring us another new take on the lives of the Henrys, or that first Elizabeth, as our historians discover more and more about each of these eras. You might, of course, wonder why it is that the British programme makers seem to return to the Tudor times so much more than perhaps any other historical era other than Victorian times, and that may simply be because of how utterly fascinating, hypocritical and downright bloody it might seem to us now, given that saying the wrong thing or giving somebody the wrong look might lead to your execution by any number of various barbaric means, 
and even believing in the wrong type of church was enough to get you in a whole heap of very hot trouble. For the ordinary people, life might have been nasty, brutal and short, but for those who rose to the giddy heights of becoming the great and the good, life was complicated and you had to keep your wits about you to survive, but the rewards were huge if you managed to survive the various plots and intrigues that surrounded you, and the roots of our modern world, the good and the bad, can be found in these intriguing times. It is, basically, a terrifying yet fascinating era of history. No wonder we keep on going back to it over and over again. Maybe some other time periods might offer up other equally fascinating stories to tell, but we don't quite get so many retellings of the signing of the Magna Carta or even the Battle of Hastings, because the Tudor era is so much sexier, the costumes are far more glamorous, and several of the actual locations are still readily available if required. There are a vast number, and today we're going to focus on a very specific trio of serials made by the BBC in that golden age of historical dramas, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R, and The Shadow of the Tower. However, because my own knowledge tends to falter if we venture too far outside my own I Claudius comfort zone, I was rather lucky that a previous guest on Vision on Sound popped up and offered to take the lead in any or all of the discussions I might want to have. So without further ado, here's Lisa Parker from the Round the Archives podcast. <laughs> Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Hello, Martin. I'm fine. How are you? I'm not so bad at all. Now, you, mm-hmm. you have offered, mm-hmm. <laughs> is the other side of uh, around the archives. We did the science one. So you're going to do the history one yes. today. So you offered to talk about historical television with yes. me. Yes, I think we balance quite well, Andrew and I, because he's science mm-hmm. and I'm So he's, he's logical and I'm more emotional, I guess. I guess history is, ah. is an emotional subject because of... It certainly the... can be, certainly for some people. Yes, yes. But depending on what history you're looking at, of course. Mm. But um, it always amazes me. I, I watch stuff and people say, oh, I don't like history. And you're, you're like, why? What is wrong with you? History mm. is telling you how you got to where you are today and how mm. you're the person you are today and how the country, for ill or for good, is where it yes. is today. Yeah. And, and it is quite fascinating from that point of view with things like, I mean, Shakespeare, some people say they really hate Shakespeare and yet all human life is in Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and it's and it's sort of in many ways covering the same kind of periods that historical drama does. Yes, I can understand about Shakespeare because um, mm. I we have we have got An Age of Kings, um, which yes. is the BBC's um, uh, late 50s, early 60s telling of the history plays. Right, and yes. it's quite dense. We watched one episode, yes. and then we thought, mm-hmm. no, because we've watched it, and then I and I know a bit of the history of it, and I still couldn't have told you who was who in it because no. it's <laughs> it's my Lord of Surrey, and, my, and you're like, what? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I've I've also watched the more recent tellings of Shakespeare, the ones they did mm. within the last ten years, and I understood that mm. a lot better, and I think it's just interesting. The way they film things now. Yes, possibly. Yes, there is a. There has been a definite a period in history, maybe the fifties and sixties, where television was could be when it came to the stuff that turned up on BBC Two. It could be a bit po-faced, and sometimes it just assumed you you'd been to Oxford or Cambridge or something, and you knew all this stuff. And Age of Kings is great series, and it's jam-packed full of great actors who double Mm. up, and it's a real ensemble. Mm -hmm. So it's. You get Julian Glover playing one part and then he'll pop up again later mm. in a bit part later on in the series. Or uh-huh. Gordon Gostolo. Gordon Gostolo's in everything. Yes. And you actually <laughs> I know you're Gostolo fan. Yeah, with, with <laughs> Gostolo claxon goes. And you also get um, Sean Connery in it. Yes. A very young Sean Connery with the most amazing eyebrows mm. playing um, Hotspur. 
So, right. And it, it's amazing. And we did enjoy it. But I think because it's filmed in studio and it's all very intense, it's, it's yes. quite hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Out of the new Shakespeare's that they did in the last 10 years, I think my favourite mm. would be Richard II because it's, it's right. in iambic patamata, so it rhymes and there's right. a really yes. nice rhythm to it and it helps you to actually mm. understand what's happening. Yeah. And there's also some nice stuff in Richard III because uh, yes. Benedict Cumberbatch played Richard III and right. there's a lovely shot of him at the end. Oh, the Hollow Crown. Yes. The Hollow Crown series. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there's a lovely course, shot of yes. him at the end of the previous one where he's just shadowed, he's a shadow against the light and it's just mm. beautifully done. Mm. So they are history plays of, obviously, of a sense. But mm. the thing that I've been watching most of recently and the thing I wanted to talk about mm. And my particular interest is the sort of Tudor histories. Ah, okay. So the the Six Wives of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R, and most mm. particularly because I think it deserves to be a lot better known than it actually is, mm-hmm. the nineteen seventy two series, The Shadow of the Tower. Right. Which not a lot of people know about no. because it concerns Henry the Seventh, who right. is obviously the founder of the Tudor dynasty. He, he, okay. he won the Battle of Bosworth against um, Richard III in 1485 and uh-huh. became king and reigned for the next almost 25 years. But if you asked your man on the street, who's your favourite Tudor king, if they had what they yeah. Tudor monarch, they would say yeah. Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. Mm. Mm. The one they'd heard the of. The one they'd heard of, because <laughs> Henry VII... Well, every, everything I know about history comes from watching Blackadder, yeah. so... <laughs> well, in that case... Um, Henry the Seventh is a liar, isn't he? <laughs> the liar Henry the Seventh, played by, wonderfully by Peter Benson of Terminus and Heartbeat fame, looking right. spectacularly like the portraits of Henry the Seventh. Mm-hmm. But he's, I think the reason he's not better known is he wasn't married six times. He was married to the same right. woman for all of his life. Oh, how very dull of him. I know. Yes. He wasn't obviously a, a, a virgin, queen. He didn't nearly marry his favourite, so he's hmm. he's a bit dull in some ways. Yeah. But okay. he had an extraordinary reign because he faced off two pretenders to his throne. Hmm. One Lambert Simnel, who who said he was Edward Earl of Warwick, who was in the tower, right. so they knew it wasn't him. And Perky Warbeck, who was a merchant's son from France, who said he was the younger son of Edward the Fourth, uh, Richard, mm-hmm. Duke of York. And he nearly became king. It was, it, in right. a way, it, it's, it's one of those great what ifs. What would have happened yeah. if this person had supported him or that person had supported him? So yeah. it, it, it does fascinate me, actually, when you think back to that period of history, because if anybody popped up and claimed this, we had, they had no way of DNA testing no. or anything like that. <laughs> it, it was just, in many ways, it was just what people reckoned, which of course is a lot of history sort of comes down yeah. to these days, yeah. what people reckon about stuff. But I, I'm fascinated in many ways about how the world worked then, mm-hmm. because people still managed to live their entire lives. They still managed to get messages. They still, you know, okay, they live perhaps in a smaller radius, mm. but it's still fascinating that people's ordinary day-to-day life 
in whatever period of history is just normal yeah. to them. Yeah. If, and, it, and that's the fascinating aspect of it to me, is that we may well sort of look at it now and go, oh, you know, isn't it primitive? Isn't it, isn't it silly or whatever? Mm-hmm. But actually they had a, you know, they had a whole economy. They had a whole uh, parliament. They yeah. had a whole, the structure of society was still a complicated thing in which people lived and by the rules of which people lived. Yes. And yet we look at it now and think, oh, how quaint, you know. Mm. I mean, you wonder if in 500 years people will look back at our society and wonder the same. Well, yes, probably. <laughs> so, I, mean, I wouldn't blame them either. Yeah. There's a little bit in this book at the, at the front, at the, the, book, the Shadow of the Tower book, which is right. by a lady called Joan McAlpine, who is the researcher of the series. Okay. Where it just gives you a bit of background of the England that Henry VII came to rule. And it says okay. there were three or four million people in the country at this time. Mm. And they were still marked by great differences in regional types. Men of the northeast were much as two inches taller than those of the southwest, and easterners were fairer than midlanders. Each region had its dialect incomprehensible to outsiders. So even the country itself Mm. was very different from region to region. So were we still at the the age when court was all in French as well, or was that passed by this uh, stage? I think. No, I think that, that sort of starts to die out after sort right. of um, Richard the Lionheart's time. It's, it, I mean, oh, they okay. did speak in French, particularly, obviously, when um, Catherine of Aragon comes over because she was Spanish mm. and she didn't speak English. They would probably speak right. in French or Latin. Right. Because there's, there's whole scenes in this as well. Because my, my copy of, of Shadow of the Tower that I've got is, is Dutch. It's a Dutch import okay. because at the time when I looked to buy it, that was the cheapest version. Mm-hmm. And well, we always like we always like to get a bargain oh, yes. when it comes to our telly buying. <laughs> but the other week when I looked at it, because it's got a couple of extras on it, one of them being this one-off play from 1969, and the other being a documentary about Henry VII. But because right. it's all in Dutch, I didn't know what they were, so I actually had to put it into a Dutch translator and translate the Dutch mm. from the back of the cover to work out what <laughs> these extras were. Wow. Which okay. didn't entirely work because it didn't translate some words properly. But um... I will now roll you back then. I will That's... roll you back. Because I, I, one of the things I do like is mm-hmm. the fact that the whole world of telly viewing, yeah. there is so much that you can't actually know about it. So I like to get someone who, who knows something about a specific area. I'm not massively au fait with historical dramas generally. I've mm-hmm. obviously seen them over the years, you know. Yeah. But uh, I'm not a big sort of... Well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. I know but very few of us would claim to be, quote, mm-hmm. experts. But uh, you actually very much like the historical drama. I do. What is it that made you become... Was, do you have an early experience that makes you think, I remember watching this when I was a kid? Or was it history at school and then it sort of also came on television? Or is it just the historical drama on television that sort of catches your eye and I go, yeah, I'm really into this? I'm not quite sure why historical dramas appeal to me so much, in, just, hmm. apart from the fact that they give access to a world that no longer exists yes. but i can i can tell you what because i i am a big history nerd mm-hmm. i i know stupid things because i because i read a lot of historical non-fiction i know stupid mm. things that people don't need to know things like for instance that charles ii although his father was quite small um, mm. And if you believe the guide in Athelhampton House, when we went there a few years ago, under five foot, which I don't believe, Charles II was... Well, maybe they didn't lop his head off then. Maybe <laughs> just, he just ducked. Um, but yeah, Charles II was six foot two. So right. It's like, where do you get a six foot two son from parents who aren't actually that tall? But Looks so, askance at the milkman. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, but yeah, but history 
fascinates me. And I can tell you mm. the first moment I first felt that fascination. I can't tell you exactly what it was, but mm-hmm. I was about 10, I think. And there was a cassette. Yeah, and an, audio, an audio, cassette. audio cassette. That's the word I was looking for. Right. Yeah. yeah, As opposed to a video, was, that's what yeah. I meant. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it didn't really say what it was. And I just not long got a um, computer spectrum right and i popped it into the tape recorder and it wasn't a computer tape it wasn't as you say an audio tape so i popped it into the my parents stereo Mm -hmm. and it had the queen elizabeth the first speech as done by an actress you know the one she gave at tilbury in at the time of the spanish armada because the original wasn't Obviously, available. Obviously, the original wasn't available because nobody had recording devices then or they wouldn't have talked to a recorder because she was the queen. And <laughs> Although some people are actually surprised by that yes. now. Why, why don't you just play the tape? Yeah. Ah, yes. And um, I listened to it and it really mm-hmm. sparked an interest in history. So right. from that point onwards, I think I probably paid a lot more attention at school. Mm-hmm. I certainly enjoyed history when I went up to senior school. I regret the fact that when I got to my final couple of years at school, the history GCSE I wanted to take was withdrawn because there wasn't enough people to do it. And um, the other one that was available was um, world history. And I didn't want to do world history, but I think maybe now thinking about it, I should have done because I probably certainly could have got my best result in that because history is, is a quite strong subject. And I also remember my friend Jane and I, my best friend who I've known for mm-hmm. oh, the best part of 35 years, possibly longer now, mm-hmm. went with her, her parents took us to London and we went to right. Westminster Abbey. Okay. And our parents, you know what parents are like, they, they let you wander. And we went <laughs> into, because obviously you can't get lost in Westminster Abbey, there's nowhere to go. So we went into the crypt bit and there was a guide in right. there. And obviously seeing we were quite interested in history, he gave us what I remember as being a solo guided tour for a good 25 minutes, half an hour, by which point her parents were getting slightly worried because obviously we'd been gone for quite a long while. But he he showed us around the crypt, he told us about all the different kings and queens that were buried there. And it was really interesting because he, I think he was bored to be honest. So having someone... <laughs> a bored guy. They're always the best ones, really. Having somebody tell you sort of one-to-one. We, we, Andrew and I actually had the same thing in Oxford. Um, we went hmm. on a, went to the Oxford um, colleges and there was a, a guide there and I can't think he was bored and he showed us the door that's the inspiration for the for the little door in um, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yes. She's looking through it, so... We're quite we're quite lucky when it comes to guys. We just get we get. No <laughs> you just have that there. that kind of air yes. about you, I, don't you? Yeah. I think they go. Oh, these people are actually interested. I'm going to talk to them. <laughs> so yeah, I've always liked history. So I don't remember watching that much when I was a child because it was. I mean, hmm. when I was sort of in my teenage years, it was the sort of mid to late eighties, and right. I don't mean there wasn't that much historical drama as such. At that no. point, well, it, it did. It did. I mean, it certainly seemed to have peaked in the sixties and seventies. Yes, it? It, it sort of. It it didn't. It did kind of fizzle out as a form. Yeah. I mean, we had in the eighties things like the Cleopatras, didn't we? The Borgias stuff like yes. that. Yes, we've seen most of the Cleopatras, but mm. despite having the Borgias for a couple of years, I've still not got around to watching it. So. Well, they seem to have sort of slipped back into uh, at that stage to to make people watch it. They either had to put in a bit of gratuitous nudity, or they were trying to sort of 
go back to the style of Claudius, which had been so successful in the mm. 70s. And so some of the later series were a bit of a disappointment ratings-wise, whatever. Mm -hmm. Especially, I suppose, that time you would have been getting things like Brideshead, wouldn't yes. you, over ITV? Which and, and the big, never seen. big productions. No. So. No, but, but those big costume dramas yeah. with big budgets and, mm -hmm. and big location work, they were sort of the big film dramas really mm -hmm. or adaptations yeah. were sort of taking over so you kind of step back into the period that you really wanted to talk about today yes. these are more the early early 70s where yes. you had things like elizabeth r yes. and shadow of the tower yeah. so would you like to uh, give us a bit of a resume of uh, would you, would, do you want to go with elizabeth r first yes. or do you want to go with yes we'll, we'll go with yeah. elizabeth okay. let me find my notes on elizabeth r i've actually okay. bit, written that many notes for elizabeth r because i've seen it quite recently so it's well it's just been on it hasn't has. it they've actually been it was actually, in this whole bbc4 becoming uh yes uh, the, the the channel for archive television all of a sudden i think that's a good thing if they're going to show more things like elizabeth r then that is a potentially mm. good thing i mean I think they've said as well they are still going to show the um, Scandinavian dramas and all that sort of thing, mm. but maybe not the completely new ones, maybe ones that have been on before. Well, it's it's about, isn't it? It's about mm. if they don't have to make them, they yeah. just have to buy them. And so I suppose that, that does tend to help. It, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a weird way to take a channel, mm -hmm. but actually from our point of view, it's a kind of good way <laughs> to take a channel. So, yeah. you know, or you'll get the people going, oh, bloody repeats forevermore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there we go. Never mind. I mean, the, the thing about the recent re-showing of Elizabeth R is that it was showing exact. it was 50 years after it was first shown, because it's first shown right. in 1971, exactly to the day. Oh, right. So it, and it, obviously it was shown on BBC Two before and BBC Four mm. this time, but it was shown on exactly the same date for, for the five weeks. Right. Um, culminating on the 20th of March, um, yeah. which was the 398th anniversary of Elizabeth I's death. All right, that's a very specific, you, know, you, you couldn't wait two years. No. <laughs> 398. Yes, because so, she died in, in 1603, so... Right. She's, you know, so yeah. So it was shown in 1971 okay. up to that date, which was, was obviously the 368th anniversary. And, and this was our Glenda, wasn't and, it? Yes. And she is marvellous. And she's one of the few mm -hmm. actresses that gets to play the part from a teenager right up to... Well, I no, say right. old age. Okay. She was only 67 when she died, Elizabeth the first, but mm. for that time, that was reasonably old. Um, mm. I mean, Patricia Rutledge does much the same thing in Victoria Regina. She plays um, right. Queen Victoria from when she becomes queen up to when, well, up to her um, 60th uh, anniversary mm. on the throne. Oh, the diamond. The diamond, the diamond jubilee. Yes. And she just about gets away with it, Patricia Rutledge. Yeah. Um, it's, it's well, I think again, it's one of those things, isn't it? That sort of four, was it four two, four two five or four oh five line television? Yeah. Probably, there were, you could get away with a lot more with makeup than possibly you could later, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, nowadays you recast it three times to tell I mean, a life story. Like the you? Crown, for instance, which is going to have three mm. different versions of Queen Elizabeth the Second. One of them who's got mm. completely the wrong eye colour. Because Elizabeth <laughs> Col um, Oliver Coleman has brown eyes, and the Queen obviously has blue eyes. But they tried it with contact lenses and they said she, she she just couldn't show any emotion with contact lenses so they went oh do you know no. what don't worry about it we're paying for the actress love yeah. <laughs> but yeah I mean even so I mean Glenda Jackson was 35 when she first started right. playing Elizabeth the first so she mm -hmm. was again it's technically it's stretching it a bit but she gets mm. away with it they you know they give her a long wig and and sort of make her look a bit younger than she is 
Mm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of actors in this playing a lot younger than they actually were because you get Mm. uh, Robert Hardy as Robert Dudley and Mm. he's playing because when Elizabeth I came to the throne, she was 25 and he was about, Robert Dudley was about a year or so so older than her. So he's playing a 26 Mm. year old. And you're looking at it going, yeah, he's, he's not 26. <laughs> but well, there, you get away with it because it's Robert Hardy. I do think we forget sometimes how much life was lived in much shorter period of time mm. back then. Yes. You know, people nowadays, we, I, we, we got so used to, I don't know, the world being run by middle-aged to elderly people. Well, I hesitate to say white men, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So, so bald men in suits with pipes and things. Yes. That it's actually quite surprising to find out how much of history was being shaped by people in their twenties. Yeah. You know? And of course, when we when we cast our actors, we go for the ones who've got a career, and that yes. can sometimes take them till their forties before they're really established for these kinds of roles. So. I mean, as a casting director, mm-hmm. you're probably thinking, yes, Robert Hardy, but but you forget the person he's playing is 20 years younger. Yes. Yeah, well, p- possibly nearly, th- nearly 25, because I think he was, he, right. he's born sort of late 20s, so mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of in his sort of mid 40. Well, yeah, it would be about 20 years. Yeah, you're right. I suppose yeah. with a lot of these things, though, it has to feel right. Yes. And, and would you say Elizabeth R. feels right it, as, a, as a production? It, it does. It does. The one thing that sticks out for me with Elizabeth R., though, is. Um, the actress Vivian Pickles, who plays okay. uh, Mary Queen of Scots, because I remember even the first time I saw it, thinking she's far too old to be mm. Mary Queen of Scots, because she was five five or so years younger than Elizabeth I. Right. Yeah. Well, I, th- yes, I thought they were, they were sisters, half sisters. They were cousins. Cousins. Yeah. Right. They're, they're um, well, um, Mary Queen of Scots' grandmother was Henry VIII's sister. Right. So it's slightly complicated because there's all these different layers of family trees. Vivian Pickles, I mean, she's a great actress and she does the part mm. very well, but it just sticks out a lot for me that she is possibly yes. far too old to be Mary Queen of Scots. But there is a story about, because um, obviously Mary Queen of Scots was executed and they show the lead up to her execution and then they, they, have, they hold her head up after mm. the execution when it's a copy of Vivian Pickles' head. And a wig mm. falls off because Mary's Queen of Scots wore a wig uh, by right. this point. And there, there was a story, and I don't know how true this is, because this is off IMDb, so it could all be rubbish. <laughs> there is a story that they, they, the head was Well, made, we believe you. You're our expert. Was made of sort of um, celluloid or something. And to keep it right. sort of looking good, it had to be immersed into water. And the okay. person whose dressing room was nearest to the set was Ronald Hines, who plays um, Lord Cecil. And he went mm. into his dressing room one time to find Vivian Pickles' disembodied, you know, um, uh, yeah. head floating in his sink, which would be enough to give anybody <laughs> the heebie-jeebies, I think, really. But uh, just imagine him coming out going, what the hell is this in my sink? Right. <laughs> so when was Elizabeth asked? Uh, 71? 71, yes. Yes, yes and obviously right. that's the, right. You said 50 years, yes. yes. The year before, you'd had The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Ah, okay. Which, Were they connected series then? I think they decided, they did The Six Wives of Henry VIII, then they thought, oh, it might be interesting to do Elizabeth the First. Right. And then they sort of thought, well, we might as well finish it off. We'll do, we'll do Henry the Seventh. And Right. Because obviously, um, Six Wives is 1970, Elizabeth R is 71, Shadow of the Tower mm. is 72. So it's, okay. it's one a year for the first three years of the 70s. Obviously filmed in 69, 70 and 71 because they all mm-hmm. start in January at the, st- of the, at the start of the year, obviously. Big new season on BBC One. Yeah, 
Yeah, for the start of the yeah. new They did like their big, to start the year with a big production. They did. Didn't they? <laughs> they did. Um, and obviously, Six Wives of Henry VIII is Keith Michelle, mm. who, again, is, is playing a lot younger than himself to start with, because Henry mm. VIII was 17 when he came to the throne, and Keith Michelle was in his early 40s. So that was kind of the uh, the role that sort of defined his career, wasn't it? it? Keith Michelle, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. yeah, that and Captain Beaky, of course. But well, well. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, he gets another chance to play Henry VIII because he does it in the in the film, which I think is of nineteen seventy two, which is directed right. by Warren Hussein. So ah, there you go. Which is a great film if you've never seen it. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. it's using the same kind of idea as the series, but condensed into a lot shorter period of time because obviously yes. Six Wise of Henry VIII is six episodes, each an hour and a half long, around mm. that that amount. That's, That's uh, similar to uh, Tinker Tailor, isn't yes. it, when they made the movies? I always feel that when you watch Tinker Tailor the movie, you don't feel you're missing anything from the TV series, yet it's no, four hours shorter. It is. I, I'm going to hold my hand I like on. the smolder of the TV version. Yeah. I do like the smolder, but it, but it is can, some people can say it's very, very small. It is very. I was just going to say that I have got Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and I've watched the first mm. episode and not got any further because I found the first mm. episode a bit slow. So, But this really is why I was going to ask you, uh, do you find Elizabeth R... Because I know that archive television can be an acquired taste, mm. but do you find the pace of it very modern or does it feel some, very much like a 1971 drama? Some episodes really feel like they whiz by. Mm. Um, I mean, the first episode particularly, there's a lot to fit in the first episode, The Lion's Cub, because obviously you've got to go from her being a princess in the time yes. of uh, of her brother, Edward VI, through the years of her sister being queen, when she mm. was, Elizabeth I was um, almost executed for mm. treason, right up to when she becomes queen. So there's a, that's mm. a lot to get through in, in the first episode. So it fairly runs mm. through it. Having said that, episode, I think it's four, which is the Enterprise of England, which is the episode that deals with the Spanish Armada, does feel a lot slower paced. Mm. Um, And I think that's because they obviously can't afford to do any battle scenes. Right, yes, I suppose so. It's all got to be done. (laughs) Reported speech, yeah, I know what you mean. Ah, there is over there, there are 600 uh, ships. Yes, I see what you mean. Out of the window. There is a little bit of outside filming for Elizabeth R, but the majority of it is in studio. Which, it's a sort of classic, yeah. classic BBC studio period production. Yeah. Really. I mean, yes. obviously, I say that gets some outside filming. The Shadow of the Tower gets no outside filming whatsoever. Right. Um, that okay. is all studio, including one bit where somebody has to ride a horse off set. Mm. And I don't know what studio they're filming in, but I'm hoping it wasn't Lime Grove because there's not room to swing a cat in some of the, in the uh, studios right. there, let alone ride a horse. I mean, admittedly, he only has to do about five steps and he's outside, so, mm. you know. But, you know. It always amazes me, actually, when you look at anything like that, how many animals they used to get into these various yeah. studios. And I know compared to my house, they're huge. Mm. But actually, in terms of a space where all the sets and everything, they're never that vast, no. are they? You know, to get a, a couple of elephants in or a couple of donkeys or whatever. Yeah. Pulling the... The sort of the, uh, What are they called? Yeah, tumbrils. Yeah. Thank you, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a dog that reoccurs quite a lot in Shadow of the Tower, an Irish wolfhound, okay. which just wanders in and out and it's it's, it's Henry the Seventh's dog and he, it, the act, oh, right. it's James Max. They didn't dog. just leave the back door open no, at the studio. No, the dog didn't just wander yeah, right. in. But... It's an actual proper cast it's dog. It's a proper dog and a monkey. There's a monkey as well. Right. A little spider monkey um, which sits on his shoulder. I was sitting there thinking I wonder if it did the inevitable down the back of his costume at any point. They are monkeys. They do what monkeys do. Yes. But yeah, I mean, 
Shadow of the Tower is the lesser known of the three series, I think. Mm. And it was certainly... The most recent as well. And the most recent. Weirdly. Um, It's as old as I am, because it was was Mm -hmm. shown in the year I was born. Um, In the first half of the year, I was born. And, I mean, it's it's 13 episodes, so it's virtually the same as the first two series put together. Well, a little bit longer, actually, because that would have only been um, 11 episodes. Right. So... That's that's six six for Henry and um, five five for Elizabeth. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's it's certainly an interesting series. And there is one Mm -hmm. episode in The Shadow of the Tower, which is episode five, which is called The Serpents and the Comforter. And it's about a heretic who's played by Peter Jeffrey, who had also been in Elizabeth R as the King of Spain. (laughs) And he is taken to the Tower of London because he's going to be burned for heresy because it's his second offence. Um, oh, apparently, okay. with at this time, if you were a heretic and you renounced your beliefs, they yes. would let you go. If okay. you did it a second time, that was it. Even if you renounced your beliefs, they would burn you because you had fallen back into your evil ways. Uh-uh. Fool me once, fool me twice yes. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay. the whole of the episode is dealing with this, this this heretic whose name you never find out. And in mm. fact, all of the characters in it are not given names. So James Maxwell, who plays King Henry VII, is just credited mm-hmm. as the king. Peter Jeffrey okay. is credited as heretic. He's also mm-hmm. got Michael Ripper in who is credited as a guard, and um, David Ashworth, who is in Brass and various other things, Hmm. as the soldier. And and he's quite profoundly moved by Peter Jeffrey, because all that Peter Jeffrey has said, his heresy, is that the church is too powerful, Hmm. priests have too much money, why do they need to live in such luxury, why does the church need Hmm. all these lands and the fine fancy buildings, all they need is their faith, and he wants uh, religion to be a more simple thing, which is obviously something the Protestant, Protestant faith will embrace later on, well, in the um, 16th century. Yes. Um, but this, at the time, with the Catholic Church, makes you a heretic. So, right. And it, it, the episode is concerned with Henry VII trying to persuade him to renounce his beliefs so that even though he is going to burn, he will burn mm. as a Christian man and be accepted into the arms of God rather than being mm. sent to hell. So in a way, it's like it's a one-off play. Because it yes. has nothing to do with any of the the episode before or the episode after. It's a okay. you could watch this one episode and not watch. Yeah, it's it's sort of it's not medieval. Is it medieval? Are we still medieval? It's no, we're not sort of really. Renaissance. But Renaissance. So yeah, but this is a slice of life in that yeah. period of time. But we're not that far away from medieval time. It's it's you know mm. it's the sort of borderline of of some bits of it being still faintly uh, medieval mm. and. and some enlightenment. Mm. Um. There is certainly, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I know in the end you can argue left, right and centre about capital punishment mm-hmm. or whatever, but there are some very moving, I, I remember being terribly moved by A Man for All Seasons. Mm. Yeah. The actual, the things that are at stake for people yes. in, in these times for just having a different belief system, mm-hmm. it, it, it can, it's, it's led to some incredible drama. It has. You know, I mean, has. and obviously some terrible things for some actual real people, yes. which we should never, never dismiss. No. But it's just, they are incredible stories because of what is at stake for the individual mm-hmm. here, you know. And also, you can look back at it from modern times and go, well, this is just primitive mm. or whatever. But actually, when you're living in that society, you've got to live by those rules. Yes. And 
those those are the risks you take and the, mm. and the risks that people were prepared to take purely mm. because of a belief they had yeah. are astonishing really uh, it is it, terribly moving so they, these are all the, the the 13 plays are all slices of of life or or are some of them more connected than um, others? some of them are more, are more connected um right. it's you you get at the start of the series obviously you get you don't get the Battle of Bosworth because there's no way A, they can do that in studio and B, they could afford it. Mm. Yes. So you get the end of the Battle of Bosworth and you get, because obviously the myth is that they found he- uh, Richard III's crown in a thorn bush and crowned right. Henry VII there and then on uh, with on the battlefield. Mm. And he actually predated his kingship to the day before the Battle of Bosworth, making mm-hmm. him a legitimate king when he fought the battle ah. uh, rather than a usurper which he technically right. was but and then a lot of people called Richard III the usurper because he took the throne from his nephew who was mm-hmm. the rightful heir unless okay. you believe the theory that Edward IV <laughs> wasn't the son of, of the Duke of York it's a very complicated thing well that's the whole thing about history isn't it yeah. I mean really it's actually extraordinarily difficult to be definitive about it. It is. I mean if that is true if that story is true and Edward the Fourth wasn't the legitimate son of Richard Duke of York then our present queen isn't actually entitled to the throne. And so that's that's going to get us taken off here. <laughs> But it is only a theory. So. Well, it is kind of fascinating when you think about how right up to the, to the modern time, people will disbelieve stuff. We're in an era where, you know, you can photograph everything, video everything. There's newspapers, 600 newspapers a day or whatever. Mm. And people will still doubt what they see in front of their own eyes even a week later. Yeah. It's kind of astonishing when you go back 600 years and people are telling you story. I mean, we did actually grow up with really one pretty one view mm. of history didn't we yeah, well, you know it was what was in your school history book was what happened and of course you know a lot of that stuff is maybe the bbc versions or mm. the television versions of these programs become what people think generally happened yeah. so i mean I, yeah. do you feel these series elizabeth are the, the and the shadow of the tower do you think they're actual accurate portrayals of the time or are they sort of a bit flowery i they're as accurate as they could make them. I mean, there's certainly right. one episode of Shadow of the Tower, which um, I should talk about, which is it's called A Fly in the Ointment. Okay. And it concerns the, I can't remember what he's actually called. So John Kendall is, is the character's oh, yes. name. And he's like the leader of the Knights of the Templar Knights. Okay. Um, and he doesn't, he's a Yorkist. So he's very much in favour of, he was in favour of Richard III and Edward IV. He doesn't mm. like Henry Tudor. So he decides he wants to kill him. And to do this, okay. he consults an astrologer in Italy. Uh, we consult two astrologers, one who can't help because he's purely scientific, and the okay. other one who he sends him to, played by John Junkin, with lots of relish. Um, <laughs> who's a more... You forget that John Junkin was actually oh, an actor, it's, don't it's you, really, sometimes? absolutely ridiculously sillily. Not over the top, but he's obviously very much mm. enjoying himself. And you get you get Terry Walsh in that episode as well, stunt performer for, right. for much of Doctor Who, because to prove he can do, he can kill somebody, he poisons a Turkish servant. And so the servant has to fall down I mean, about five steps, and obviously they get Terry Walsh right. in because he's got to fall down five steps. I mean, to fair. Bit of a bugger if you're a Turkish servant, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, Every, all your hopes and dreams count for naught. But again, they were heretics, so they didn't count. Ah, okay. yeah. Oh, okay. So, but yeah, so this whole story is that they want to kill the king, mm. so they go and see this astrologer, and it's also got Peter. B- 
Chrissy Bowles in it, doing the most extraordinary mm-hmm. French accent since Peter Sellers. <laughs> um, which was very distracting because you're like, what did he just say? Did he say door? Because uh, it was all, you know. Epin, the door. Literally, it's, it's highly recommended to watch the, oh, this episode. And he eventually sends this ointment, which he says, if you smear it around the doorway, the king will walk through, then everybody that loves him will attack him and kill him, which is obviously wow. nonsense. Absolutely. But it's it's... And I'm not entirely sure this is based in any historical fact at all. Right. I just think they wanted to do something. This is like the comedy episode. Ah, okay. What's the transmission date on that? Was it was it Christmas? No, no. It's it's yeah. It it starts in January. So it's January to March. Right. So it'd be sort of middle February then, yes. something like that. Yeah. BBC Two. It was shown oh, um, okay. eight o'clock opposite various mm-hmm. things like Six of Ricks, which is six plays mm-hmm. with Brian Ricks in. Brighton Bells, right. which seems to be some sort of comedy anthology series, one with Dora Bryan. Okay. And odd episodes of The Good Old Days. Good Old Days. Yeah, right. so yeah, it starts on the 6th of January, 1972, to the 30th of right. March, 1972. So, and that episode is about episode 7. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. sort of... I think we sometimes do forget that basically this is an era where there were three channels. (laughs) So this was a third of your viewing options and some people never watched BBC Two. No, no. Yeah, I don't think people, some people thought their television turned to BBC Two, did it? It went Mm. straight from from one to ITV. Yes, basically. (laughs) Although some also just, oh no, that's not that. BBC Two was very niche in its day, really, wasn't it? I mean, this would be seen as posh people's telly Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Yeah, well, in some respects, 70s BBC Two is now as BBC Four, isn't it? Because it's Mm. showing a lot of stuff that BBC Four now would show, now that BBC Two has become a more for want of a better word, mainstream channel. Yeah. But, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a very interesting series. It's, I say, 13 episodes, chock full of actors you will have heard of. Mm-hmm. People are like, I mean, Christopher Neen, who I always associate with either sort of being the plucky Brit in the Second World War dramas like Colditz or oh, yes. Secret Army or the, or the nasty mm. characters mm. that he, he plays in some things. In this, he's playing mm. Edward, Earl of Warwick, who right. was the son of the Duke of Clarence, who was the brother of Edward the Fourth, who was executed mm-hmm. allegedly by drowning in a, in a barrel of wine. Oh, it's him, yes. the butt of sack butt, man. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And it, he was his son. And obviously he had quite a strong claim to the throne because he was the next male heir. But mm. Henry VII stuck him in the tower to keep him safe so-called, mm. and out of the way. And I don't know whether... He, he seems to have had some learning difficulties. So and I don't okay. know whether he had these from when he was a child, and that's why he was or sort of Or because Shakespeare away. said so. Yeah. Are these definite ones yeah, or, he, he, or made-up ones? He was described as being simple-minded. So it's only right. what I can describe now as having a learning difficulty of some kind. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, he, he was put in the tower. And you don't expect Christopher Neen to be playing this sort of innocent character Hmm. and he basically episode 12 concerns because obviously henry the seventh wanted to marry his eldest son prince arthur to catherine of aragon who is the daughter of the king and queen of spain Mm -hmm. and they 
were not happy about the fact that a he had one acknowledged pretender to the throne who was Perkin mm-hmm. Warbeck, who was this merchant's son from France, and the Earl of Warwick, who was an actual Yorkist claimant for the throne. Okay. So the whole episode concerns a plot to get him to commit treason so they can execute him. So, which is, I mean, obviously, nobody will never know if that's actually what happened, if it was a plot made by Henry and his advisors to trick him into committing treason, or whether he actually did commit treason of his own accord. Hmm. But looking at him, as he he does seem to have had uh, learning difficulties, it would seem that he was an innocent who was fitted up, for the want of a better word, (laughs) so that they they could kill him. And get rid of him. No. So, cause it is actually a, a fascinating era, isn't it? it is. Just for storytelling yeah. as much as anything. I mean, I know that uh, other series have dipped into that area and, and found completely new stories mm. to tell. Do you feel that this was kind of the end of that kind of costume drama? Or, or do you feel that there were later? Because I do feel that you get to 76 and you get Claudius and mm. it does feel very different stylistically. It feels like a more modern television playing. I mean, in some ways, television prior to that is very... I'm not saying it's theatre played out on, on television, but there's a very theatrical air yeah. to it. Yeah, I know And mean. later, later it, it becomes more a television performance. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know that probably sounds a bit weird, but if you, like I say, if you move on, what do you think is the state of play with modern TV drama period drama now because we've got things like what the, the, wasn't there a Tudor series yeah there was ago? a Tudor was, series there? that is yeah absolutely that is just a soap really in historical right. garments because the thing about the Tudors and don't get me wrong it's quite entertaining um and mm-hmm. I have seen a fair amount of it but you've got an actor playing the king who doesn't have red hair who's not mm. very tall or very well built and Henry VIII was six foot odd and, and quite broad shouldered. Mm. Before he, he got older and got a lot fatter, he was still mm. quite a big man, pardon the expression. Yeah. Um, and obviously Jonathan rhys A man of substance. A man of substance, yeah. Jonathan <laughs> rhys Myers isn't like that at all. Right. They also, because it was primarily aimed at the American market, they also mm. decided it would confuse the Americans if there were too many Princess Mary is in it. Okay. So uh, the the character Princess Margaret, who is an amalgamation of two of Henry VIII's sisters, mm. is created, and right. you lose you. So you you get her story, but you lose the other story completely. Okay. So this is this is actually starting to play a bit fast and loose with, with the, his, the facts with the as facts. we know them. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, I mean, I also... Do you feel that's acceptable in the kind of stories they're trying to tell, or is it? Because it's not trying to be a historical drama, it's yeah. it's acceptable. It's acceptable if you know that it's not completely right. true. But if it's being if used it's as being education... Used, it's, if it's being used yeah. more as a historical drama than a historical soap, then it maybe mm. crosses that line of that people are going to watch this and believe this. Mm. But, you know, you can always do the research. You can watch the episodes and then look mm. at... at, at the story of that person you've just watched to see. I just had this vision of somebody going on uh, something like Pointless and saying, giving an answer and, and going, and they'll say, but it was on the Tudors. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it. No, that that's it was Princess. What's a face? Yes. No, 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 no. They played fast and loose. <laughs> I mean, you also get as well, because more recently, there's been a few looking again at the Tudor times, but it's mm. taking it from the novels of Philippa Gregory, who right. is a very good author. 
but she plays mm. somewhat fast and loose with some of the not the facts necessarily mm. but her interpretation of the mm. facts so for instance that she, she believes that Perkin Warbeck was Richard Duke of York right uh, so and there is the possibility that he was because the only right. evidence we have of him being Perkin Warbeck was his confession after he was captured and we don't yes. know what had been done to him before he made that confession. But right. it looks in all likelihood that he wasn't Richard Duke of York. And also they did mm. find two children's skeletons in the Tower of London in Victorian times, which they believe yeah. are the princes in the Tower. Yeah. So, um, and we also get, nowadays, we get the, the Hilary Mantel trilogy yes. or whatever they are yeah. now as well. I mean, now is, is, that's, a, that's again the same sort of ground. It, it is. Really? Same sort of era. Yeah, that's, it's Thomas Cromwell, which is, is Henry yes. VIII's. And in that, actually, she makes Thomas more a villain. So it's completely right. the other side of um, A Man for All Seasons. Yeah. She makes him sort of the villain of the piece, sort of, you know, close-minded and dogmatic and, and not mm-hmm. a friend at all to Thomas Cromwell. We haven't even gone on to the Cromwell years and, and, and no. the Restoration and everything they, like that. They, they did the Civil Wars in the 70s, didn't they? It, mm. By the Sword Divided. Mm. which I've never seen, and it's incredibly mm. difficult to get hold of oh, well. on DVD. It's very yeah. expensive. So the shows you've been talking about today, are they reasonably widely available? Yeah, well, now? Elizabeth R., well, most of Elizabeth R. is currently on the BBC iPlayer. That yes. is disappearing week by week. Ah, but it, OK, it, it's not one of those on for 12 no, months jobs. It's, no. it's doing the month. But it right. is, is available on DVD. The Shadow of the Tower is available on DVD. OK. Not all only from, from Holland. It's also available mm. in this country. And obviously Henry Henry VIII and his six, six wives, wives yeah. both versions, the film and the television series, both available on DVD. And they're both very good. Obviously, the television mm. series takes a lot longer because mm. each wife has an episode to herself. Mm. Um, and you get, I mean, you got, again, you've got some great performances. You know, you get Annette Crosby as Catherine of Aragon. Mm. And um, Dorothy Tootin as as Anne Boleyn, mm. and you get the extraordinary episode about Jane Seymour, which is for a vast amount of it is her in a feverish state as she's dying, remembering ah. how she got to the point where she is now. And not not just painting in California and remembering being in the Bond film, not that one. No. No, that's, that's the other, yes. <laughs> I always feel that Jane Seymour should have played Jane Seymour yeah. at some point. I don't know why. Well, it's just one of those things. A, she, apparently, because obviously that's not her, her birth name, and she picked that because she thought it was an <laughs> obscure queen that nobody would have heard of, so... <laughs> And now she's everywhere. Yes. So uh, when it comes to historical drama, mm-hmm. do you prefer, I mean, do you like, do you, I mean, the things like the Caesars as well, you know, and, and, and the sort of Victorian era and, I, and those kinds of yeah. like, upstairs, downstairs, stuff like that? I do. I do. Because um, if you are, we will have you back. You do know this. Oh, I'll, yeah. make, I'll make you talk about those for well, I, an hour as well. I I've, I've got the Caesars. We've not watched that yet. We must actually watch no. that. Because uh, that's covering the same ground as uh, Claudius from a slightly yeah. different, different perspective. perspective is, yeah, a slightly yeah. more, maybe not quite so serious perspective mm. as, as Claudius. Because it's a good series, actually. It's, yeah. it's, it's Granada, and it's about ten years earlier, mm-hmm. isn't it? So it's kind of it, it's obviously the differences in production are mm. quite interesting, and the differences in in the way these things are approached. But it's fundamentally the same part of her history you know but then obviously there's lots of digging to be done in in victorian times as well and even you know the 20th century mm. 20th century history is a fascinating source of, of stuff as well i'll tell you what i would like to talk to you briefly before we finish mm-hmm. though today is the historical documentary are you a fan of the historical documentary i mean i assume you must be oh yeah i i i, I have watched the odd uh lucy worsley 
in my time. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I know a lot of people make fun of her because she dresses up and takes part in it. But I think that brings it to life, really. It's making it accessible, it is isn't it? It's it the same way. I mean, you go yeah. to Hampton Court and yeah. people will dress up in in the outfits yes. as well, oh, yeah, just we, to tell the story. We, so. we did that a few years ago with my friend and her two sons. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, the, the kids were getting all involved in whether Henry VIII should give Anne Boleyn jewels or not. Or, <laughs> oh, but, no, he shouldn't. Yeah. Oh, yes, he should. So, oh, no, he shouldn't. But, yeah, it's, um, uh, okay. yeah uh, <laughs> I do like it. I mean, there's, there's, there is a documentary on the Shadow of the Tower set, which is an early 70s documentary. Mm. And in the credits, it says um, Henry VIII played by, and that's not included mm. in the documentary. So I don't know why mm. that's been snipped out. Mm. But that documentary is, that's a little, it's mostly sort of tweedy professors sitting in a room talking about Henry mm. VII. So it could do with a bit of an enlivening, to be honest. It is interesting, again, actually, we were saying about how the style of the dramas had changed. But also, when you think about the style of, documentary historical documentary mm-hmm. has changed a lot i mean nowadays you actually get people actors playing the characters yes in the documentaries you do. don't you which yeah. which can be a bit disconcerting if they're suddenly looking straight down the lens and saying i was king blah 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 blah, blah yeah. or whatever especially if you uh, watch channel that... five documentaries it's a whole lot of <laughs> channel five documentaries. i try not to. Tudor documentaries. <laughs> they're actually they're, they're not bad a lot of them but it's um okay they're, they're quite i always think with channel five they've got to have a nazi in there somewhere and i don't really <laughs> notice <laughs> i don't know the tudors and the nazis or something is going to be the title yeah, I don't know but why. it's no that some of them are not so bad this last mm. year um, with Channel 5 documentaries, I'm finding there's a lot of people, historians, sitting in their kitchens on Zoom. Yes. Um, well, being sort well of a lot of us are doing that. Yeah. In. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's, sometimes you sort of think, that's a bit echo, and then you realise it's somebody's mm. kitchen or somebody's sort mm. of conservatory, and that's why... Yes. It's more echoey. Do you feel, though, that the actual ed- the educational value of, of modern TV documentaries, do you feel you get more out of a modern... The people talk about dumbing down, don't they? And, mm-hmm. I, and I kind of wonder, do you feel that the modern documentary, you come away from it actually having learned less than you might have done with the old ones? Or because they're more sort of punchy and engaging, do you think people do come away from them in a more in a more enlightened way than, than we might believe? I think they, they do. I think they could be mm. a little bit repetitive because I I, yes. I recently watched a three-part documentary on the downfall of Anne Boleyn and there right. was you can tell these things are filmed on a budget because they use mm. the same shots quite a lot right so yes. there'll be a just for instance I'm not saying this is necessarily what it is but there'll be a shot of a door shutting and they'll mm. use that shot of that door shutting numerous times yes during yeah. the documentary but it's... There, is, there is a style, certainly with some of the Egyptian ones I've watched, where you seem to get coming up after the break for two minutes, yeah, and then, and then they... after the break you get yeah. recap the previous bit, and you've got your four sections, and and actually the new content is about thirty minutes out of the hour. Yes, the rest <laughs> of it is this is what's to come. I mean, yeah. there were some documentaries that the BBC made, or somebody made for the BBC hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. One was on the Spanish Armada which had okay. Anita Dobson as Elizabeth I. Mm. And there's a shot in that of somebody throwing a sack of, mm. I would guess it's corn or something like that, down to somebody mm. in a hold, which they must have used about 10 times mm. every episode. Right. And there's also another documentary that they did about the Battle of Hastings, what, the normal conquest. Mm. And, and that one, they did reuse some shots the shot of the mm. actor playing harold of england walking down a corridor got frequently mm. reused but they also mm. had three historians in that acting 
as the different kings so that mm. they could talk about how they were going to win their particular battles. So that's yes. an interesting way to look at it, you know, get the historians in. I remember years ago watching, uh, I think there was a series called Gunpowder, Treason and Plot, which was about four episodes. Yes. It was, yes. And that had a really big budget. Mm. And you do kind of, what I'm kind of wondering sometimes is do you, because the big budget and the trailers will draw people in. Do you think in the end, a big budget documentary actually is as good as a small budget, you know, an intimate portrait of these periods? Do you, I just, again, it's it's one of those things, I suppose I'm, what I'm really asking is when we go back to the dramas, mm -hmm. do you feel that in the end, Elizabeth R is as good a telling of that period of history as any other version, you know, that may have the Armada and all the CGI mm -hmm. boats and everything like that? Or do you feel it's just as effective a way of telling a story of a time i, I think it's quite it's quite an effective way of, of, of telling a story mm. in this bizarre because P people standing in rooms is sometimes the way history is yeah. you know because even something like you know, like, i know this is a bit, a bit of a sort of curveball but something like the sandbaggers as, mm. as a drama works mm. very well because it's people standing in rooms talking about what's going on yeah. without necessarily you seeing any of the action mm -hmm. and i just feel that somehow with these because they were big budget uh, historical dramas yes like say for their time i mean foresight saga okay that's more fictional but mm -hmm. again of their time it's still people standing around in rooms in costume yeah. but i feel in the end perhaps they are in many ways a, a, a better way of telling those stories mm -hmm. yeah yeah so you would recommend them to people I... if they if they were seeking out the historical drama the the old ones are very much worth their time yeah they, they are, I mean, there are newer versions of the story of Elizabeth I because both Channel 4 mm. and the BBC have done newer versions of, of this. It story. is a fascinating time, so, isn't yeah. it? Of course, there have been big big feature films oh, yeah. as well about yeah, they're that They're completely well, yeah. historically inaccurate, but, you know, <laughs> they look good. So, Be warned, don't, don't do your O-level based on... <laughs> no, no, if you're going to do your O-levels, watch Elizabeth R. It's got some semblance of truth in it, at least. I mean, some of the events are a bit jumbled around, as they always do with these things. They move mm. things a little bit and, and, and change names and amalgamate characters because, obviously, you can't fit everybody in. But if it leads you to actually go off and read a book about that period, then, you know, that's that's yeah. all to the good, I think. And we do run the risk of becoming historical dramas ourselves by just talking about O-levels. <laughs> I was the first year of GCSEs, so I ah. I just I scraped in. Our year was the first year that took the new newfangled GCSEs. <laughs> so, so. Well, that's been great. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us again today. Yeah. Uh, we will have you back and we will probably have a quick dive through the uh, the darker corners of maybe Victorian England in yeah. another episode sometime, mm -hmm. if, you, if you're quite happy to do that. I, I am. I'm always yeah. grateful when people spend the time doing their researches. Oh, I've, I've done Because <laughs> like I say, I'm no expert, so yeah. it's always good. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Thank you very much. Okay, it's a pleasure. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Anyway, once again, we've run out of time here on Vision on Sound. My many thanks to Lisa, of course, for guiding me through our time travels this week. I hope that she'll return very soon to delve back into another period of television history with me. My thanks also go to everyone at Fab Radio International and, as ever, to you for listening. As with most subjects, we barely scratch the surface and I guess we'll be having another go at them another time. Anyway, goodbye for now and take care. <laughs>